Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. I think the story of James Monroe as a young man, as a young officer, shows us how political and military mobilization is working in the moment in Virginia society. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Jake Ruddeman talking about the early revolutionary life of James Monroe. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by Discover Concord, the town where our American history began. Plan to visit and explore historic Concord, Massachusetts. For more information, visit discoverconcordma.com. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Our guest today is Journal of the American Revolution contributor, Professor Jake Ruddeman. And he's written an outstanding article on the early life of future President James Monroe. We often think of the revolutionary generation uh, as a group of distinguished older gentlemen uh, using their grand life experience to forge a new nation. And in, in some ways, that was true. But when you look at people like Monroe and Hamilton... One of the things that really strikes me is just how much this was truly a young man's war. Uh, Monroe would go on to be an incredible statesman and president in the future. But during the revolution, while you have, again, older, more distinguished figures like George Washington and uh, Henry Knox and uh, guys like this in the background, in the midst of that, you have young guns like Monroe and Hamilton operating and learning from them, hopefully applying these lessons later in life. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Jake Ruddeman. Jake Ruddeman, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure to get to talk to you today. Tell us about your background. Well, I'm an associate professor at Wake Forest in North Carolina, and I'm an early Americanist. I, I teach colonial history, colonial American history, the American Revolution, and the early Republic. And uh, my research is in is in the American Revolution, and particularly in the War of Independence. What first drew your interest into this topic? Well, I was invited to deliver a lecture on James Monroe as a soldier by the James Monroe Library and Museum in Fredericksburg. And my first book is, um, is from 2014, and it's called Becoming Men of Some Consequence, Youth and Military Service in the American Revolution. And so my, my scholarship has begun with looking at soldiers as young men, and James Monroe is just smack in the middle of the, the demographic band of soldiers and officers that I looked at in my first book. And I had only about a paragraph on James Monroe in that book. Um, and mainly because most of the book is looking at 
far more ordinary soldiers. Um, most of the soldiers in the American Revolution are quite young. They're not, they're not boy soldiers, um, but they're, you know, 18, 19, up through about 23, 24, when they enlist. And the longer they serve in the war, their ages go up. And the longer they survive, their ages go up. And I had looked at James Monroe in relation to his experience in leaving the Continental Army, uh, his path in the middle of the war, basically in 1778 and 79, back into civilian life. And I threw him in a paragraph with some other founding father type names like Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton and, and friends. I think John Marshall might be in that paragraph too. And, but this opportunity to, to think specifically about Monroe as a test case was a really fun opportunity from the uh, the Monroe Museum folks, and they very generously invited me to, to to share my thoughts. And so what I have had the chance to share via the Journal of the American, Re uh, Journal of the American Revolution is uh, an extension and expansion of of that thinking and, and that investigation. Talk about James Monroe's early life before the war. Well, what I really like looking at with with this demographic, with these young soldiers, is these guys who tend to be born 1754, 1755, 1760, 1763. It's a very narrow band. It's a very specific set of, of people. And what's interesting about Monroe is that if you look at him from his you know, statesmanship and his political career, his presidency, his diplomacy back, um, in some ways, I think that that can distort how we understand him as a mere youth, which is how he describes himself in his memoir of his time in, in the Revolutionary War, a mere youth. Uh, his, his time growing up in Virginia, I, I think of him as elite adjacent. He's from a propertied family. He's from you know, a fairly prominent family. He's, he's, he's not an ordinary person. Um, and yet he's, he's not part of the tobacco elite. Um, his father dies young and orphans Monroe and his siblings young. And I think that that sort of casts him towards fortune and he has to sort of make his own way. Um, and here I'm deferring to some really excellent biographies. Harry Ammons' 1971 classic, James Monroe and the Quest for National Identity, or Tim McGrath's uh, 2020 work, James Monroe, A Life. Uh, but the thing that, that strikes me about Monroe is that he's elite adjacent. Uh, he's orphaned. He's brought up under the protection of his mother's brother, Joseph Jones, who's a prominent jurist. And Monroe... As a as a child, as an early teen, and then as a as a teenager, is a protege, um, a likely heir to Jones, and he's trucked off to William and Mary as a teenager in Williamsburg to to get the the polish that he needs to be a proper member of the political, social, and economic elite of Virginia. And I'm not a biographer, but I really love attending to individual people's stories 
And I love the context and the opportunity for comparison. And sometimes I, I feel sometimes I feel that biographies of, of prominent figures in history can can kind of lose context or, or run contingency in the wrong direction. Because like any early action must necessarily prefigure uh, a character's later greatness. Um, or it's a biography of a great figure, which means the the biographical subject must be singular. But I don't think that that's the way time works with contingency, and I, and I don't think that's the way these societies work in terms of either singularity, representativeness, or remarkableness. So Monroe, as a youth, is, makes for a really interesting test case in relation to the Revolutionary War, the early Revolutionary War especially. What drew Monroe into military service? This is a really interesting question, and it's, it's, it's really a great story of about 1775 and early 1776. There's really cool scholarship that's, that's been advanced in the last couple years where historians of the Revolution have been looking at 1774 and looking at 1775 as these crucible moments of political mobilization, of military organization. And the thing I find interesting is political organization and military organization or mobilization seem to be tracking together, um, though not with an intention of independence or not even necessarily with an intention towards war, but for self-defense. And so if you are in Williamsburg, the political cockpit of Virginia and you're a Whig, you're a patriot, and you're getting organized like Monroe was, he's like 17. He's, he's participating with his friends, um, with his elders, and that's how he gets organized. Um, I wouldn't call it radicalized. I think he's fairly, I think he's fairly regular in, in comparison with a lot of his peers, um, and I don't think he would see himself as, as radical, but um, he is getting mobilized and organized. He's drawn to service certainly by ideology, um, this need for, for action and manly self-defense and all of that. But I think there's also a component of, of youthful messianism. You know, he's, a, he's about 16, 17. He's, he's a teenager. And teenager is not a, a category that exists in the 1700s. But um, I think that there's, I think there are possible parallels to our own society. And, and the way I think about it and the way I describe it to my undergraduates is nobody believes like a teenager. Like it's, it's that true believer and it's that youthful messianism even. His first military action is, is often celebrated in there's this raid on Governor Dunmore's palace. The governor of Virginia, the royal governor of Virginia, has arms, swords, muskets, pistols on site in, in the governor's palace. And when the war starts in April 75, one of, the, one of the early actions is there's this raid or heist, perhaps, to seize those weapons and get them in the hands of, of proper defenders of American liberty and Virginia's liberties. And Monroe is part of that raid. 
And he's not a leader of it. He's essentially muscle. Um, he's also thoroughly expendable. He doesn't have a family. He doesn't have a family to support. He's, you know, it's like if he were to be arrested, um, I, that would be sad for James Monroe, but it wouldn't be catastrophic socially. More established men have more to lose and are sometimes a little more cautious in their behaviors. It's really hard to measure ambition. Um, what I decided to look at for this study was I decided to look at Monroe's earliest surviving correspondence and sort of run it against the memoir that he pens after his presidency in retirement. And he's very close-mouthed in his memoir. He talks about the revolution, but he wants to get on to he wants to get on to his political work with Jefferson and his time as a diplomat and his time in Congress, his time as president. But he does talk about the Revolutionary War. Um, but his correspondence really tells a different story. And we don't have a letter, or at least I was not able to identify a letter from this earliest 1775 moment. But what I know about Virginia is that to be elite in Virginia is to be seen and is to be worthy of the effort of social evaluation. So James Monroe needs to be seen. And his behaviors in 1775 and, and in early 1776, he's putting himself forward in this raid, in volunteering to become a cadet officer, and then his receipt of an officer's commission, he's putting himself forward to be judged by his peers, um, by his betters in some ways, um, to prove that he's a gentleman and to, pr pr to prove that he's worthy, because how else is the 17-year-old going to do it? You read a lot about the importance of the year 1776 for Monroe. Could you talk about that some? 1776 is a big year for Monroe. And I decided to move chronologically because I was following the, I was following the chronological arc of his surviving correspondence. And that surviving correspondence really paints, a, I think, an insightful picture of the relationships that Monroe has. And in 1776, you can really see these relationships solidifying. So the, the college closes, William and Mary closes, and he receives his commission. It's kind of a, it's not a forced decision, but he doesn't really have anything else to do. Um, and also as a, as a young man with, you know, of the right family and of the right connections, like there would be very little excuse for him to, to dodge. He's commissioned the Virginia regiment he's with marches up towards New York to, to counter the British um, fleet's appearance. And he writes in his memoir that they're, they're just a little bit behind on the timeline. And he writes about the battle at Brooklyn, which is catastrophic. And the, the Delaware and Maryland regiments that are just cut to pieces and he basically implies in his memoir that had he been, had they been a little faster on the road, that would have been their fate as well. 
which is uh, which is on one hand from from an older man's memory, it's sort of this moment of like, well, there but for the grace of God, or also sort of a, an expectation that his unit would not have broken, that they would have fought and they would have died the way that the Marylanders did. He is, however, in the engagement at Harlem, and he sees his officers fall there. Um, He's in the retreat to White Plains. He's in the retreat across New Jersey. Um, In his memoir, and all of this is, is in his memoir, he has this great quote about George Washington, sort of his the first time he he notes uh, George Washington. He watches him basically at the rear of the army as they're like leaving Newark, New Jersey. And Monroe says he's he was at the rear of a small band. He was always near the enemy, and his countenance and manner made an impression time can never efface. He had a, Washington had a deportment so firm, so dignified, so exalted, but yet so modest and composed, I have never seen it in another person. And this, this is James Monroe, the fanboy, uh, seeing the great George Washington, and that is his, as an old man, that is the memory that he holds of George Washington, his commander. His memoir also memorializes in a really subtle and kind of melancholy way, all of the losses that he sees around him. He, he's, he speaks of friends who are wounded, of fellow officers who are killed. Um, and as an old man, he's directly comparing it to his own good fortune. He survives. Um, but that, it's almost like a, a moment of survivor's guilt. Like I, I didn't deserve this or this friend, this friend falling in New York or at Brandywine in 1777. It's, it's a weight still on Monroe all those years later. Um, the big thing that happens in 1776 it, for Monroe after the retreat is the attack on Trenton. And this is, this is the, the hinge moment in his military career. Um, Washington gathers the remains of his army, famously asks his soldiers to, to, to come with him. He'll later ask them to just hang on and, and hold out a little longer on their enlistments and like, let's attack Princeton. Monroe is a lieutenant, and he volunteers to go with an officer named William Washington, as part of the advance guard to cut off communications around Princeton. And this is an interesting moment, I think, in Monroe's career, because on one hand, it's like, yes, he is volunteering. He is putting himself out there. This is very daring. This is very brave. But he's also going with a fellow Virginian. And this is the way, like, this is the way to be seen. This is the way to to prove his worth. And this special service is something that he feels he can take on. So he crosses the the Delaware. He is not in George Washington's boat, unlike the big, beautiful picture by Leutze. Um And he's an actor in the beginning of the Trenton attack. Um, they do their job cutting off communications. His officer falls early in the fighting um, at Trenton against the Hessians. Monroe steps forward, is leading his troops. He is shot, gravely wounded in the shoulder, 
it's all very professional. It's all very daring. And he's 18 years old. So in 1776, he has seen both the absolute worst of the early defeats, and he is part of the moment where the tide turns. And he bears the scars for it. Talk about the impact of Lord Sterling on Monroe's life and career. Monroe is really quite representative, I think, here. If you look at generals and their aides, the aides de camp, um, these aides are young officers. They're men of prominent families or up-and-coming families. They They usually have distinguished themselves early on in battle. It's very common to go from like captain to you know lieutenant colonel and thus aide to this general. This is Alexander Hamilton's story. This is Monroe's story. You kind of go down the list of of who's who, and and you'll you'll come across these junior officers who can serve in this secretarial role. But generals call their aides family, the general's family, the general's household, and it's I think it has this paternal or patriarchal component to it. Um, These are like 20-year-olds, young 20s, with a man who's 45 or 50. So they're essentially sons of a military father, and their fellow aides or brothers. Sterling Sterling basically rescues James Monroe's military career. He's promoted to captain because of his excellent behavior and leadership in the Trenton attack. But as a captain, it's really easy for, for officers' commissions to be handed out, but you need men to command. And so Monroe's first task is go back to Virginia and raise a company. And he's terrible at it. He, it's 1777. He's recruiting men for three years or the duration of the war. And he hates recruiting because people think poorly of him. And this is something that really pops in in a letter that he writes in this moment. And he basically fails to raise a company. And this could essentially kick him out of the service as a supernumerary officer. But he's taken in by Sterling. And as an aide, he's a secretary. He's copying correspondence. He's drafting correspondence. He's collecting reports. But he's also another set of eyes on the battlefield or on campaign and an aide speaks with his general's voice on the battlefield. So it's a, it's a, it's a very important and high-profile role. But it's not an independent command, which is what every aide wants and hopes to graduate from the general's family into. I see really two very big impacts for Monroe with his time working with Sterling. Um, the first is he gets to see the big picture of the campaign in 77 and 78. He gets to see the politics, the internal politics of the army and of the Confederation. And the second big thing is connections. He is visible to the army's elite um, and he can advance himself this way. Every aide wants a regiment. And by 1778, it's also clear that after two years of service as an aide, it's also clear that James Monroe is not going to get one. And this is another hinge moment in his military career. Why did Monroe 
leave the army? He wants a regiment of his own. What's really interesting to me is that Monroe, in one telling of this, we could say Monroe leaves the Continental Army. The other way that we could say it, and he resigns from Sterling's staff in December 1778 or thereabouts. Another way that we could say it is he spends from January 1779 until the fall of 1781 when Yorktown transpires. He spends those years trying to get back into the army. He, he's trying to leave or transition to something better than the general's household at the end of 1778, because professionally it's a dead end. He has, it's, it's very hard work. It's not glamorous. Um, and basically the next step after being an aide is having a regiment of his own. So he, he's trying to get um, a regiment of his own. He resigned. He goes back down to Virginia basically looking for a commission in the Virginia state troops. He receives that commission, but he has the same problem that he had in 77. He cannot, there are no soldiers to raise. Um, he goes back to the Continental Army. He goes back to, to headquarters and secures letters of recommendation from Sterling and Washington. But there's nothing, there's no rank and command that is commensurate with his experience his ambitions, his sense of honor. I mean, from his perspective, he has been serving honorably in the war from almost its beginning. So he, he can't just stop. And he also can't, he can't accept an inferior rank. You know, it's, it's, it's not like he could suddenly say, well, I'll enlist as a private and, and fight for, the liberties of Virginia and America. Like that's not the way their world works. So he had his ambition and his honor and his, the service that he has under his belt demands, demands a colonelcy. Um, so with no troops to command, he basically bounces back to essentially the end of a college curriculum to read in preparation for studying law. But he is kind of continually keeping his eye out for military opportunities. And this is one reason why when he's choosing, do I read for the law? Do I read with with George with in Williamsburg? Or do I read with Thomas Jefferson now governor of Virginia in Richmond, his uncle, the judge Joseph Jones says, go with Jefferson because he's going to need essentially a military attache or when the militia is called out, of course, Governor Jefferson will lead them as a general and you'll be right there. And so even this ambition of, okay, read the law, study law, read it with Jefferson, there's actually a military component to that ambition. We, of course, know what happens to Monroe in the long term. But what happens to Monroe in the immediate aftermath of leaving military service? In 1780, it's interesting because during the war, I would say, let's break this out into three stages. In 1780, he's studying law with Thomas Jefferson and the British capture Charleston and the Carolinas collapse. And Governor Jefferson needs intelligence about what's going on in 
the states to the south. And he has his law student, James Monroe, basically go with a special commission to speak with the generals and governors to make observations, to try to count noses and figure out how much danger is Virginia in in the summer of 1780. And that is exactly what his uncle expected would happen. That's kind of what Monroe may have hoped. Um, and when the Yorktown campaign begins, uh, Monroe is writing to his friend Lafayette, who is leading a, a force of Continentals in Virginia asking basically for a uh, a hookup with some general staff he's like can you can you put in a good word with benjamin lincoln for me and uh nothing comes of it but he says explicitly in a letter he's like i'm not looking to come back permanently i just want to help out during this campaign which on one hand could be read as um a lack of ambition i actually think it's it's uh, a recognition of the, the the staffing limits that the Continental Army has. They already have too many officers. They don't they don't need more. Uh, but as a gentleman volunteer with with great experience, like surely I can be useful at Yorktown. Um, and he is not useful at Yorktown, but that's okay. The other thing that Monroe's doing here, and I think it compares interestingly with his military stuff. And this is the second thing that he's doing in this late years of the war is he has this idea that he can go to France and study. And it's not entirely clear to me what he'd be studying law he'd be studying. But if you're a young Virginian and you've arrived in France to study, clearly you're going to get hooked up with the American congressional diplomatic mission where he could essentially sign on as a secretary or an assistant, or an aide, and basically do on the diplomatic side, while reading for the law, what he had done with Sterling. And so he has an eye on continued service and continued contribution. But if the military line, if that door is closing or closed, well, maybe he can do something in, in this diplomatic avenue. That ship never sails. He never is able to get on a ship during the war to get to France. Um, and the third thing ultimately is after Yorktown, he gets elected to the Virginia state legislature, sort of on the encouragement of his uncle and using the letters of recommendation from Sterling and George Washington to make the case that though he's young, uh, and though he has not yet passed the bar, uh, he should he should be worthy of the opportunity to serve his fellow Virginians. And he's elected, and he serves in 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 the assembly. And because he has very little private business, they basically load him up with terrible committee work, and because he has no law practice, and he doesn't have a family, and he's. He's essentially given all of this just terrible paperwork to do. But uh, when his patron, Joseph Jones, leaves his term limited out of the Confederation Congress, more or less, James Monroe is sent up to Annapolis to keep his seat warm at the end of 1783, which is the same thing that Alexander Hamilton did for Philip Schuyler. And... So at every point here and in these latter stages, we see service, 
But we also see the beginnings of a political career and the beginnings of a, a political career that's not aimed at election, but aimed at cooperation with fellow elites to run things. And because democracy is not really a huge thing yet, right? So that's what I see. That's what I see in James Monroe's war. As a young man, he has got an arc of youthful enthusiasm, of you know, bravery and daring and competence in the face of enemy fire, a career as a as a secretary, as an aide, and then the question becomes can I continue to climb the ladder to be seen, to demonstrate my honor, my ability, my usefulness to my peers in the military line, perhaps in a diplomatic line, and then ultimately in elected office. Jake, how does this article help us to understand the revolutionary era better? I think the story of James Monroe as a young man as a young officer shows us how political and military mobilization is working in the moment in Virginia society. I also think it shows us how hierarchy persists within elite circles, especially Uh, there's a very old question of what happens with deference in the American revolution. Does the American revolution destroy this expectation that certain people will lead and certain people will, lesser people will willingly accept the rule of their betters? Um, or is deference something that never actually existed in the first place? When we look at James Monroe, it kind of gives us a, an end run around that really old question. Because as a, a young, up-and-coming member of the Virginia elite, what he's showing us in his correspondence during the war, and then what he's, what he's essentially erasing from his memoir is that he's dependent. He is, he is always looking for patrons and connections, and he's not an independent actor. He is a leader, but he's a junior member of this system. And as a dependent he's working within an old system and he's ambitiously connecting himself with powerful patrons and seeking to be useful to them. And that's, that's the way their world worked in 1776 and in 1780 and in 1783. And Monroe's success is that he uses this momentum out of the war to launch himself into a useful and prominent political career in Virginia, serving as, you know, as a, as a, as a supporter of, of Jefferson's Virginia faction, as a diplomat, as a governor, as president, um, you could say it all starts with the war, but the way I would say it all starts with the war is his experiences and relationships in the military struggle for independence are connecting him with the political elite and the social elite that really hold the keys to power. And that's what young James Monroe gets to do because he's fortunate enough to survive the Revolutionary War. Jake Rudiman, thanks again. 
Thank you so much, Brady. I really appreciate the work that you all do, and I'm really glad to have the opportunity to talk to you today. Thank you. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.